Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman and Bruce. While there's no, there has been no spring practice. There's been no actual football to report on in a long time. Recruiting is still going, and and frankly, seems pretty eventful right now. Um, with some teams that you're not used to seeing at the top, at the top, and some players going to places you wouldn't necessarily expect them to go. Yeah, we're going to be joined by our friend Barton Simmons to break down the Vols are making their fans very excited. The USC fans are fired up, or I think they're fired up, because they are making waves on the recruiting trail, something that we talked a lot about last, it wasn't that long ago, where they were kind of a dud when it came to the national recruiting rankings, as well as Mac Brown uh, capitalizing on a lot of momentum. So we'll get to Barton and let's get to Barton now. We are pleased to be joined now by Barton Simmons, Director of Scouting for 24-7 Sports. And there's a lot going on in recruiting we wanted to ask you about, Barton. But first, tell us, you know, we're all affected, obviously, by um, the shutdowns right now. And, you know, one thing I've, I've thought of with you guys is, uh, I always say recruiting analysis and evaluation seem to get more accurate by the year. And a big part of that, I assume, is being able to see these kids in person at camps and combines in the spring and summer. You know, how is this affecting what you guys do on the recruiting analysis front? Well, yeah, I mean, from the evaluation standpoint, it definitely has a, a major impact because a big part of what we do is is being able to verify their height, their weight, being able to sort of sort guys and and filter guys through how, how fast they run. Um, and, and all these camps give us a lot of that information, but so does a lot of the track times and, and, and data from, from other sports that start to emerge from the spring. And, and even more than that, we, you know, we talk to college coaches and in, in a way they, they act as, as sort of an extension of our evaluation process and cause they're on the road. And so they're seeing guys in person and they're, you know, we're, we're able to, to hear from them when some guys don't check out or do check out. So it, it, it is absolutely, I think, a, a challenge for us in terms of the evaluation process. But I think in, in some ways I'm embracing it and excited for it because, you know, we're, we're constantly on the road, we're traveling, we're going to camps. And so often um, that ultimately drives a lot of our evaluation just from a time perspective. And now that time is being devoted to just doubling down on watching film. So it's less of a drive-by overview of, of these guys where you watch two minutes of their highlight film and, 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 and sort of come up with a ranking on them. Like we're taking a much deeper, granular look at position-by-position position film breakdowns than we ever have before. And I think, that's, it, it, I think there's a chance these rankings could be more accurate than ever and not less. Uh, I certainly hope so. Um, and, and then maybe in the future, if that turns out to be true, we can, you know, adjust our evaluation process accordingly. But there, there's a, you know, we're, we're looking at guys from the 30,000 foot view or whatever, and college pro- programs have to have a really, a much better grasp of their 25 signees every year. 
So we're have, hoping to, to kind of sort of build that that level of uh, knowledge on those players because we have more time to do it and, and nothing else to do but uh, really dig in. All right, Barton. So a lot of things that have gone on in the last few months have news related have been recruiting wise and there was big recruiting news this week uh, on monday 247 was first to report that a five-star recruit from the 2020 class zachary evans big big time running back from the state of texas who had been linked to a bunch of sec schools actually ends up enrolling at tcu so first Tell us about how big of a deal this is for Gary Patterson's program. And second, what happened that he ended up there and maybe not at some of these other SEC programs that people thought he might go to? Well, it's a big deal for Gary Patterson's program because they don't – I mean, TCU just doesn't typically find themselves in, in the battles for these sort of prospects. The, the five-star guy at, at, at premium uh, showcase positions. Um, and so just – that alone, I think, makes this this big because he comes in and he'll he'll probably be as talented as anyone on the roster, regardless of the position. Um, and, and certainly, will be one of the most talented players, if not the most talented, in the backfield, uh, especially with Darius Anderson and Shaywo Lanalua out. So, I think that that's huge. Um, you know, in terms of 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 how he landed at at TCU, like the, here's the key thing is. Yes, you get you got him, and you're gonna get you get a bump. And we're talking about TCU. We're talking about Zach Evans and Gary Patterson and all this. And so that's that's all a positive for the TCU program. But this has been a guy that's been very flaky uh, throughout his recruitment. He's been indecisive. He's been all over the place. And uh, there's some concerns have have risen from college staffs in terms of like, is he worth the effort? Uh, is uh, like a lot of schools moved on. Uh, a lot of schools filled up. A lot of schools didn't save a spot for him because they just did, they couldn't couldn't count on him. And uh, you know, and and he's you know he's he's been suspended from his high school team a couple times. Um, he's he's there's just been a lot of of red flags. And and all that said, every person you talk to about the kid, no no one's no one's claiming he's a bad kid. Um, he's just he's just been a little bit all over the place, and so I think there's a real challenge here at hand for Gary Patterson and that staff to get a kid who's incredibly talented but has hasn't been overly focused over the last couple of years uh, to to stay focused and stay on on the tracks. Um, and if you can do that, then you got a huge get. If you don't, then you, you know you could be dealing with a kid who's in the transfer portal in in a couple months, um, and so. You know that's the challenge. Um, it, it was the the path to get to TCU was pretty interesting. Um, this was a guy that was considered to be a Texas lean very early in the process. Then he released a top five with no Texas in state schools. I'm sorry, state of Texas lean early in the process. Then he released a top five with no in state schools in it. Um, he towards 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 the fall he started leaning towards LSU were sort of the indications, and then signing day for the early period comes and goes and he doesn't announce anywhere word starts to break that Georgia was actually where he signed which was a little bit off the radar um things go south with Georgia between the time he signed and the time he was planning on announcing at the Under Armour game backs out of that commitment uh Georgia lets him out of the LOI he pursues a a number of different schools gets down the road a little bit with Ole Miss and Tennessee tries to get back in it with Texas A&M. Like, again, this is just sort of the 
stream of consciousness nature of this recruitment. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think TCU does end up making a lot of sense. It's an in-state school, but not a school that he's been able to sort of lose interest in uh, over the course of the process. Gary Patterson has done a great job of, of developing uh, players and 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 making good on taking some chances on some guys. And while I wouldn't have guessed TCU back in the fall, if someone had told me, hey, I think he's going to end up at TCU back in April or February even, I, I would have been very believing of that just because that's just – feels right in terms of where this lands. It's just a team that's been on the periphery, but an in-state program, uh, it just kind of makes sense. That just that that recounting of all of the twists and turns in his recruitment left me a little bit exhausted. Yeah. I hope it works out for him yeah. and for uh, TCU and Gary Patterson. I think in terms of the 2021 class, the, the huge story right now is this tear that Tennessee is on. Uh, they're now ranked number two in your guys' rankings, and uh, – Matt Zenitz from AL.com summed it up this way uh, a couple days ago. In the last 15 days, Tennessee has landed commitments from the nation's top-ranked linebacker, a five-star edge rusher, a four-star quarterback, four-star running back, four-star wide receiver, four-star offensive lineman, four-star defensive tackle, four-star linebacker, four-star defensive back, the nation's top-ranked Juco running back, and a three-star DB. Again, in the last 15 days. Yeah. How is Jeremy Pruitt pulling this off and – how confident would you be that most or all those guys are are going to stay? I mean, we're still so far away. Like, do we think these are firm commitments this this early in the process? Um, you know, tell us a little bit what's going on behind the scenes with Tennessee. So, I don't think any commitment in this twenty twenty what are we twenty twenty one cycle? I don't think any commitment is as firm in this cycle as as in most. A lot of these guys are, are, are making commitments. And this is, I'm not saying with Tennessee, I'm saying across the board, just universally. I think this is going to be a more volatile recruiting class, especially if at some point the gates are open and guys are allowed to take visits again. I guess if things sort of stay locked down for until next February, then uh, yeah, I guess maybe all these commitments could stick. But a, a lot of these guys are making decisions based on limited limited opportunities to get to, to multiple campuses. Um, and so who wins in those battles? Well, it's the programs, A, that I think are decisive in, in, in trusting of their board uh, and, and programs that are diligent, hardworking, and aggressive on the recruiting trail. I mean, Jeremy Pruitt has always been that, and his staff is that. Um, and so that's certainly been a trademark of, of, this, of this group. Um, and then I think also like they this 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 strikes me as being very well coordinated by Tennessee. Um, they, I think that they did a good job of of realizing quickly, you know what? Like we're not going to have the opportunity to get out in the spring like we might have hoped. We're not going to have a chance to get these guys on campus in the summer like we would have hoped. And Jeremy Pruitt actually has been someone that has caught some heat in the state of Tennessee, like for, for not being willing to compromise on, look, you got to get to camp. If I'm going to, I'm not just going to toss out offers. Like you need to come work out for us. We need to see you. And, and then, and then we'll see what happens. Um, so a lot of programs in this current circumstances are, uh, might've been thinking, well, 
we're not comfortable in our board yet because we got to get some guys on campus and we got to we got to verify some things. We got to see them work out. I think Tennessee started really pushing the button on this class uh, a little bit earlier than some others and had some conviction and confidence in their board and 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 went ahead and got these guys in the fold. And I think that that served them well um, and built a lot of momentum. And momentum breeds more momentum. And in recruiting, momentum is a real thing. And Tennessee's got a lot of it, and and I think all of that has come together for just a really strong push here in the spring. And they've done they've done a good job of making themselves the story of the spring. Barton, speaking of momentum, there's a, this kind of ties into two things. First of all, uh, Corey Foreman, who is is twenty four seven's number one ranked uh, player overall, he's a defensive lineman from on the West Coast at Corona Centennial. He was committed to Clemson. He decommitted. And one of the things I've heard from talking to a lot of football coaches, or at least talking to some of them have brought this up, that they wondered if kids in the wake of all this stuff going on with COVID-19 and the lockdown, if some kids would be less likely to go that far away from home after this. Uh, I wanted to ask you what your sense is on that. And also... USC has a lot of momentum, it feels like. Dante Williams especially has brought some recruiting buzz. He was the Oregon assistant who USC hired, and uh, Clay Helton shook up his staff, and it's definitely playing well on the recruiting trail. So I wanted to ask you kind of a combination question. One, do you think that it will it is going to have an impact to keep kids maybe more local than they have been in recent years? And two, do you think USC will be able to retain and build off this momentum that they have right now? So, yeah, I think those are those are great points. Um, Corey Former is an interesting one because as soon as his decommitment broke, and Clemson had had a non-academic, they've had one decommitment since 2016. I think they haven't had a non-academic decommitment since like 2014 or something. It, it's 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 pretty remarkable what Clemson's done in in terms of keeping guys committed and so when Corey Foreman decommitted that was my initial reaction was like this is just uh, this, this this could be related you know this could be good news for USC um, the reality with Corey Foreman is he might actually end up at LSU he might end up at Georgia he might end up at Alabama uh, he, there's no telling where he's going to land but USC certainly is is in good shape as well so that one might be unique and just that that he still could be willing to get away from home, but I think your greater point is is absolutely true, and I've talked to coaches about the same thing. Like think about think about Mike Loxley at Maryland, for example, who there's all this talent in the DMV, and frankly, in in the first cycle and a half or so, he still struggled to keep all of it at home. And when you think about the idea that all of those guys aren't going to spread out this spring and take take their bus tours and go take multiple visits to SEC programs and um, and aren't going to just have have the camp tour that where where they get enamored by one stop or another they're, they're just going to have their you know they're, they're going to have the relationships that they built with the home state program and they would have naturally been in state to the to the home to the local program many times already um, you know that, that those trips aren't going to happen and in turn I think there's an opportunity to keep guys like that home, and you can look at Rutgers in the same way—a program that hadn't had success, but you know might have an opportunity to keep some more local guys home as they're sort of building and pushing this promise of a new regime. But also, just the idea of 
not only the logistics of it, but just the the comfort level of it, of like like the uncertainty generally in the world right now, and the family members that might just be a little bit more skittish sending a guy across the country when they don't even really know what their job's going to look like in a couple months or whether there's going to be a football season or like it's just all of that just sort of I think creates like an environment where people are a little bit closer to the vest in terms of of how they want to play their hand and so uh, I think it's I think it is something that some of those programs I mentioned can capitalize on you look at you talk about uh, Tennessee being number two in the rankings Um, North Carolina is number three and they've got 14 commits 13 of them are in-state guys I think they would have had a pretty good recruiting class anyways. I think that they would have landed a lot of these guys anyways. But it certainly doesn't hurt that these kids are are not having the opportunity to get out and take visits and not as many programs are going to be able to come in and visit them locally. So it's a, it, it's a really interesting dynamic. And I think the programs that have a really strong local recruiting base are going to be able to benefit to a degree. Even Iowa, this is – Kirk Ferentz hasn't – offered this many local kids in his entire tenure. And I think that's a a product of it just being a strong year in the state of Iowa. But it's a great time to have a strong year. Um, And I was sitting in the top 10 in the recruiting rankings right now, which is, I mean, they're not a recruiting juggernaut. Um, And and I think that this is, you know, what they're seeing is is related to being able to capitalize on, on a strong local crop. It's fascinating to think about, you know, we're all so fixated in, in our world on is the season going to start on time? Is it going to be September? Is it going to be October, January, whatever? But um, the, the, the ramifications of this, I mean, a lot of people aren't going to want to get on a plane and travel right. for a very long time. So I think the trend for a lot of programs in, in the last few years has been to go more national. And I mean, this, this class, maybe even next year's class could, could possibly reverse that at a lot of places and really... Um, change the scope of college football. You mentioned Mac and your UNC, Mac Brown, um, their number. So it's right now on, on your on your site's listings. It's number one, Ohio State, number two, Tennessee, number three, North Carolina, number four, Clemson, number five, USC. Obviously, of those five, UNC would be seemingly the one that doesn't normally belong there. Mac was a tremendous recruiter at Texas, obviously. But did you expect he would be able to, to – um, to be doing, I mean, this is the kind of cl- highly ranked classes Texas would sign. Would you have imagined he could do this to this level at a school like UNC that hasn't had that great football tradition? Um, no, I didn't expect this. I, I think I was encouraged when his staff started to come together because it seemed to be built with recruiting in mind. Um, and I include, you know, even off field, I, I just think that they. He, he, he seemed to have a pretty good game plan pretty quick uh, uh, in, in terms of the recruiting piece. And it look, I mean, ultimately, when they landed Sam Howell, that was that was a huge springboard, not only in terms of, of hey, look, you got a, your quarterback of the future, and that's something you can build on on the field and off, but also I think that indicated their competency uh, in, in, in terms of, targeting that guy, making him a priority and landing him. Um, and, and now I think what we're seeing is building off of, of a, a strong first year. And like I said, this, this really outstanding in-state crop in North Carolina. And so I, yeah, I mean, I think it's been, 
it's been really impressive. And Mac Brown's always been, a, like you mentioned, a phenomenal recruiter. I think what got him in trouble at Texas was it, it was almost too good of a recruiter because what they would do is, is they would just sort of draft their class in the state of Texas and they they draft it, basically take first choice um, and they pick it uh, a, a good year and a half before signing day and and they'd be done. And then they start working on the next class. And so they just picked wrong. And so I think that you know North Carolina is is in a place where and and, a, and I think that's a state that probably is has really good players that don't quite get maybe the same foot traffic as the players in like Metro Atlanta or or the state of Georgia in general or South Florida. And so you can find really good players at all at a lot of different positions. And uh, and Mac Brown has still got that. That winning, that winning personality. You know, he's still, he's still the guy that's going to win the living room no matter what. And uh, and so it's, it's not been surprising after that initial push. And I think that North Carolina is going to continue to recruit at a high level with him. All right, Barton. Well, we appreciate your perspective. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating to watch some of these upstart programs. I don't know if we want to call USC an upstart because they were obviously not that far removed from being great, but. Uh, we encourage our audience to follow you on Twitter and it's just at Barton Simmons. Again, Barton is the, uh, director of scouting for 24 seven sports and he does, he and his colleagues do a terrific job on all things recruiting. So we encourage you guys to follow him and Barton again, stay safe and, uh, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks guys. Always appreciate uh, getting on here talking. Back to the podcast in a minute, but first, a word from our newest partner, Hydrant. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation, but not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So get 25% off your first order by going to drinkhydrant.com audible. That's drinkhydrant.com slash audible for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash audible. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, Bruce, there was a lot of interesting uh, a lot of interesting things that came up in that interview, and it does seem like, obviously, we don't know how long things are going to continue to be so, so not business as usual, but probably, I would think, it's going to dramatically affect this year's recruiting class, and... Uh, I mean, I kind of wonder if there's going to be a, a higher um, miss rate in these classes just because the coaches didn't get to meet kids in person and evaluate them as extensively as they normally would. Yeah, I think there's that. I also think that the aspect of how far will these kids end up traveling? Like right now, this year, at least according to 247's rankings, the two top players in the country are West Coast kids. One's from Southern California. The other one is from uh, Washington State. And do those kids stay in the Pac-12 now? We'll see. I mean, I think you have uh, 
it's going to be interesting just because I think we've gotten more used to, certainly with Clemson's footprint expanding so much in the past year, will that keep up? Will there be kids who leave their geographical areas or will this kind of make them change their minds? I do think you're right, though, with less information, with less intel, with less in-person eyeballing, I think it's only natural that there will be more misevaluations just because the less information I think is going to hinder some of that. And like I said on there, I even even if things are relatively back to, you know, even if restrictions are lifted and you can travel wherever you want tomorrow, a lot of people still are going to be hesitant to get on a plane and I think that could continue for a long time. So we could see not just one recruiting class but several recruiting classes tilt more locally the more I think about it, not just just because I think this whole experience has made people probably appreciate being around their families more and feel a little uh, hesitant to let their 18-year-old son go move 2,000 miles away. So something to, to keep tracking, I think, o- over time. Um, what do you say we get to the mailbag? As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first one from Pablo Flores uh, Bruce, you had a very interesting interview with Reggie Bush the other day on The Athletic uh, where he revisited his college career kind of through the prism of these new NCAA NIL rules and, and um, you know, had an expert in there tell you think he could have made millions in college. But also, obviously, he had a scandal that involved you know six-figure extra benefits. So Pablo says, I love the pod. My question is, why is there still so much animosity towards Reggie Bush this many years later? I just read Bruce's story on The Athletic, which was good. I was blown away by the hate for Bush in the comment sections, though. I didn't know there are still so many people upset about it. Can you guys explain? Thanks. Stu, you want to go first, and then I'll, I'll weigh in? Well, it's interesting because just this week, there was a story about this lawsuit that Zion Williamson's involved in, and I'm not even really clear who's suing whom. Who? It's like a marketing agent that that where the deal went south or whatever. And he's as part of this lawsuit demanding that Zion admit that he got paid to go to Duke by the shoe companies or whatever. And I just it just went over with a resounding dud. Like it's the kind of story that would have been so explosive 10, 15 years ago that just nobody cares about now. But I think Reggie being part of that probably one of the last eras where the idea of a star player getting extra treatment like that, and especially kind of the salacious dollar figures that were involved branded you as an enemy. Like there's just a certain section of the fan base or the college football public that will always view him as a quote unquote cheater. Um, or, or maybe there, maybe it's not even about Reggie personally. It's about that USC and Pete Carroll. A lot of people just got sick of them because they were so good for so long. Um, so, I don't know. You never know. I'm always careful to think that comment sections represent the population at large, but um, it, it may be that that um, it doesn't matter what the climate is today, what the rules change, that, that what, what happened then is still uh, what he's going to be remembered for, for some people. Yeah, we worked on this story for about a week, um, and I started out by asking about NIL and his thoughts on that. And then it kind of went further. And then after the first conversation, I said, well, I wanted to ask you also, since we're getting into this 
And so we, we explained, you know, he went through some stuff and then he's, you know, he, he said, and what's in the story is look that there was a lot of stuff that went on a lot of long time ago. Some of the stuff he goes, I don't know. And he said, some of the things, if you start going through it, people are going to go, well, why'd you mention this? But you didn't mention that. And he did say, and it's mentioned in the story, look, uh, I did make some mistakes. There were some things where I knew I messed up. Um, but as, as we wrote, and this is talking to the CEO from Navigate Research, is he, they think, or projected, would have made between 4 and $6 million if he played today. Even by his... 2005 window they said he would have made between two and three million dollars and that's before social media came along so even by that standard i don't think anybody thinks reggie bush no matter what the nca determined was or his family or anybody close to him got anywhere near that kind of money so i think it's very uh like his story and this is part of what i liked about the story was his story is complicated um, when you get into, and I think people who read it n- could see about his background, how he grew up and some of those things, and also he, how he views the NCA model through it. Um, and I think a lot of times people look at, at things as being very black and white and think, okay, this person's this way or this person's not. And it's often there's gray areas to this. Um, so... I don't know. I, I think it's it's one of those things where there's a lot of animosity towards the USC, that Pete Carroll team. But keep in mind, there was nobody there at USC who was funding that, according to the NCA. I mean, they tied it to Todd McNair, and they said, well, USC should know. But I mean, the more I you know talk to people on that, the more I look back on, this was such a screwy case the NCA had um, with it. But you know, at this point, it's a, it's 15 years removed. I will be curious to see if Reggie Bush and the NCA or Reggie Bush in USC, if he's still disassociated because that was supposed to be coming up this summer. Um, and I have no idea how that's going to play out, but it will be interesting to see how USC handles it going forward, especially in light of the NIL stuff coming on. And just one other thing I wanted to bring up because it's mentioned in my story a little bit at the end is with NIL, I do think you're, the, the crux of it is how will uh, the NCA deal with not Reggie Bush's potential to make money from the Nike or Adidas or the supplement business or the beverage business, because those are opportunities that are out there, but it's really about the appearance fee. And if some booster decides or some some local businessman says, hey, I want to have Reggie Bush come to my kid's birthday party and they're going to pay him 50 grand. I mean, if you do 10 of those, that's half a million dollars. And the NCA will probably argue, and this has come up to me when I've talked to some, some university people saying, all right, this is the area where it freaks them out because they're going to be, well, that's a recruiting advantage. Well, there are people in Congress who are going to go, yeah, but if you're talking about blocking their free market value, that's where the fight is going to be. So I think that's something people are going to keep an, have to keep an eye on as, the, as this advances. And also, I think you're going to see universities create marketing plans as part of the recruiting pitch because they're going to say, hey, we can leverage our social media and this is the money it's going to mean. And so I think Reggie Bush's story as it is, 
is a really good launch point into those discussions that are going to have to happen. Yeah, I mean, he was, just to be clear, the, the idea that he would have made 2 or $3 million, like, it's not like that would have been... I mean, he was the he he was the exception. It was such a unique moment in time where he and Matt Leiner were the faces of this great dynasty at the time in LA. Now you think of LA's sports scene now, and it's Lakers, 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 Rams, Clippers, Dodgers. But at that time, there was no NFL. Lakers weren't that good. It was USC football was the team in LA during that time, and so that would have led to exactly the kind of thing you said about people wanting to have them at their birthday party to show off to their neighbors. So um, I think it would be an impossible thing to enforce, but also kind of an unusual situation. Now, another NIL question, though, and it kind of speaks to exactly what you were just saying. Brian Johannes, on your most recent podcast, the two of you and Nicole were discussing NIL and recruits potentially picking a big market school to enhance their potential. But what about a school like Nebraska with its rabid fan base? Yes, the Huskers haven't enjoyed a lot of success lately, but we know how loyal the fan base is. And along with their embracing of NIL and partnerships, could this be something they have an advantage with compared to other schools? So Nebraska specifically uh, was, I believe, the first one to announce a partnership with this company, Open Doors, which was actually started by a former Nebraska player, where they are they are not not just embracing NIL, but working with a company that can work with the athletes and tell them this is what we value your your brand to be here are some opportunities we think you you would um you would be able to land now they are talking entirely about social media not endorsement deals or whatnot but brian is absolutely right i don't think in general market size is going to be the determining factor in any of this because first of all like i said la was in love with usc back then I'm not sure a USC player now is going to be all that in demand around LA or certainly a Miami Hurricanes player around the city of Miami. Like sometimes that can work against a college program when you're in a pro town. But Nebraska is always going to be Nebraska and those players are always going to be very in demand. And frankly, whether you play for Nebraska or whoever, um, if you become a star and build your own social media following, I do think that's the way the overwhelming majority of these athletes are going to make a few extra dollars it's not through endorsement deals it's through um monetizing their youtube channels doing an occasional sponsored post on instagram something like that yeah look i think of some of these places i've been to oklahoma where uh you know even ohio state obviously columbus is is a, is a bigger city but when you you ever spend time there you listen to the radio you're like whoa i remember that player and they're they're a big part of it you know i'm trying to remember we did three or four oklahoma games last season and i remember sitting in my hotel room on the saturday and all of a sudden there was a local commercial and i never would have recognized jason white but i want to say it was jason white and brandon whedon were doing a commercial for i don't remember what it was but obviously it was a local commercial and we're talking about legendary you know jason white won a heisman and brandon whedon was a first round pick and and those, I think those opportunities would absolutely be there in very passionate uh, states where the following is as big as, as it is for college football and those athletes, especially when there isn't a, there isn't a pro, pro connection like that. So uh, it's a good point by Brian, I think. Uh, next question, Stu, is from Craig in Detroit. Guys, the Big 12 and the Pac-12 both announced that their conference media days scheduled for the end of July will now be virtual. We keep hearing about these teams 
wanting players back July 15th so we can start the season on time. This seems to me to be an apprentice double standard. To me, if we look past what and when they're saying, these actions seem to seem to me that football may in fact be delayed. Am I missing something here? Well, it's just because they hate the media, right? They... <laughs> The media are always the last one. I'm just kidding. Let's not go. I'm Let's just not kidding. start with I don't that, think if I you can... held a media day in Dallas in July that a lot of media would go to it, If certainly if they have to fly in. So this is a pretty obvious, easy thing to make virtual. In fact, i got to give the Pac-12 credit. This week they did. They're doing webinars with each of the 12 head coaches for the media, Zoom webinars, webinars where um, you wouldn't normally get that opportunity, I think, in the typical offseason. Maybe there would be a conference call. So... No, I don't think they're the same thing. Uh, any talk of, of players reporting to camp on July 15th is you're talking about if they think they can do that, it means because they know that it's a controlled environment with a finite amount of people, um, that there'll be testing available, like something that where the it's a pretty controlled environment, relatively speaking. Whereas, I mean, SEC Media Days, if you've ever been to it, is 800 media members crammed into a ballroom 800 it's like 1200 i can't i've lost track over the years and and people who are coming in from all different parts of the country i mean there's no you just can't do that right now you how would you test all those people um how would you do social distancing you you clearly can't it's just it's just not doable um are they sent so is it a double standard i mean i don't think so um I think that they have time to to make the decision on whether they can start practice on July 15th. Uh, really, the biggest thing is the players need to know whether to be back or not. And you know, I would hope they would give them at least a couple weeks advance notice on that so they can plan the logistics. That's different than a conference media days where reporters are making travel plans and hotel plans and um, you've got to coordinate all those different teams flying in and out. That's just... Um, I don't know that, that to me they're not particularly comparable situations alright Bruce this next question is going to give you a chance to give people a little update on something from Nick in Olathe Kansas um, a few months ago you mentioned a book project involving the LSU Tigers team that won the national championship how will the pandemic affect this project in terms of its progress or release hopefully there will be a place where I can purchase a signed copy of this book that, that is a good question, Nick. Thank you. Um, the book is in. I turned it in like a week and a half ago, and I'm scheduled to turn in uh, the revise of whatever editing questions my editor has uh, this week. As far as I know, I think it's still proceeding at pace. What it will be different is I, th- I, th- I think we're hoping to release it around SEC Media Days and that there, as Stu just said, thanks to Craig in Detroit, the media days are going to be very different, assuming there, you know, isn't a season starts on time. So, I, you know, I probably should have asked asked the publishing people this, as far as I know, um, to give an update. But as far as I know, the book should be out in time for the college football season, and and uh, I'm excited about that. I feel like it's a project that was that was one that. You had to really get up to speed in a hurry, but I, you know, it was something that I'm really into, and I think, I think it'll be beyond just like LSU fans will be into it. So hopefully, uh, something by August, 
and I got my fingers crossed for that. Uh, as far as signed copies, it's probably going to be a while before there's signings and things of that nature. But um, but yeah, hopefully hopefully sooner than later. They might have to mail you their copy of the book for you to sign and then mail it back. Yeah, that that uh, I don't know. There's got to be a more efficient way than that, though. Well, maybe you could do. Maybe instead of your signing the book, maybe somebody could pay you a certain or make a donation or something for you to um, show up on Zoom and and make an appearance for them. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. It's going to be exciting. Um, how many? It's been any. You know, you, the QB book was what six years ago at this point. The QB book was yeah, I think five or six. Yeah, six years ago. So. Um, I hadn't planned on doing another book, but uh, this project I always thought was in the back of my head, especially if I, I thought Ogeron would have a lot of success at, at LSU. And once that started to get momentum, I was like, all right, here's my opportunity to do Meat Market too, I think. And then it just kind of got a lot more momentum as they did uh, as the I season mean, went on. And it ended up working out just you couldn't work out more perfectly. What a what a story it was to tell. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. We've um, started m- making sure to move them to earlier in the week so people have more time to listen during the week because, as we know, um, a lot of people's podcast consumptions have been disrupted by the fact that they're not really in their cars very much right now or they're not going to the gym or, or any number of other things. So... Um, we're going to try to start putting them out early in the week so you have you can divide it up over the week or however you're listening to your podcast right now. And uh, as I've said before in the past, we're also thinking about what kind of guests to have on during this unusual time. You can always send recommendations to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40% off your subscription to the athletic oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. Hey, hey, hey.